0: Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's a Politics Wednesday edition of River to River. From IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer. On board today, Wayne Moyer, professor of political science and policy studies at Grinnell College. Hi, Wayne. Hi, Ben. Rachel Caulfield on board in our Des Moines studio. Thanks for coming in (laughs) over the icy roads. And, uh, well, it's a little bit warmer today, isn't it, Rachel?
1: It is. It's so nice. It feels balmy out there. (laughs) And we
0: invited you into a windowless studio. That's right. congratulations on accepting that invitation. (laughs) Professor of Political Science at Drake University, Rachel, so glad to have you on board. And our listeners, uh, join our conversation today, Uh, 1-866-780-9100. Uh, That's a number you should have um, on your refrigerator or on your desk, close at hand, along with our email, river to river at iowapublicradio.org. Later, uh, we want to talk about the state of the Iowa Democratic Party. Uh, So uh, after the last election, we know Iowa Democrats were left with only one statewide office, Rob Sand, the state auditor. So, uh, And we had very low turnout for Iowa Democrats in this um, past uh, caucus day on Monday. So we want to go back to a game we played over the years, haven't played it for a while. In five words or less, describe the state of the Iowa Democratic Party. Just use a handful of words to describe the state of the Iowa Democratic Party. Perhaps you'd like to email your five words or less to -to river2river at iowapublicradio.org, or you can call us one 866 780 780 9,100. We're going to put that off to the side just for a moment, get back to that in a few minutes, because we want to continue to digest (laughs) what happened on (laughs) Monday evening, Uh, Wayne and uh, uh, Rachel. Donald Trump with a big win this week here in Iowa. Uh, DeSantis and Haley a distant second and third, though uh, uh, DeSantis edging out Haley by a couple of percentage points. Uh, Rachel, let me start with you. Your takeaways uh, from this uh, big win.
1: Well, there's no question. This is Donald Trump's party at this point. Um, You know, I've been saying all year that if Donald Trump could get over 50 percent and nobody else got above 25 percent, this was Donald Trump's nomination. It was over in Iowa. Um, And then I would follow that up by saying, you know, if Donald Trump is under 50 percent and one of the other candidates gets up to 25 percent or 30 percent, then – the narrative out of Iowa is that there's a viable alternative to Trump. Mm. Clearly, we're in the first scenario. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're headed to New Hampshire, obviously, but there's no reason to expect that even a win uh, you know, or a, a stronger than expected showing in Iowa is going to really provide a clear path for Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis. I think, you know, for the most part, this is going to end up being one of the shortest and least- Uh, least exciting nominations in U.S. history.
0: Mm -hmm. Wayne, does that match
2: your analysis? Uh, Pretty close. I think the odds are very much in favor of Trump. However, uh, I do think Haley has a chance in the New Hampshire primary, and I do think that might make a difference. The independents can vote in the Republican primary in New Hampshire, and if they come out in force and if they back Haley that may change the calculations, or at least begin to change the calculations within the Republican uh, 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 superstructure.
0: Okay, so Wayne, you see a narrow, albeit narrow, but conceivable path uh, for Nikki Haley, uh, depending on how she does does in the Granite State. And Rachel, you're not going to say there's any real chance for, for Haley or DeSantis.
1: No, I mean, I think they've both made good efforts. I think they're both, you know, credible candidates in any other year. But going up against Donald Trump, you know, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that in Iowa, if you want to re-register and you want to attend the, the Republican caucuses, independents can participate here. And they went for Donald Trump. Um, right? So, you know, those people, who if you go back a year, um, you'll remember the narrative around Ron DeSantis's campaign was all about electability. Uh, you know he he was the electable version of Donald Trump. He hit his high water mark at thirty percent in June in Iowa, has gone downhill from there. Despite spending thirty million dollars in the state, mm-hmm. um, and you know, we see from exit polls that for those people who believe that the most important priority is beating Joe Biden, they went for Donald Trump. Um, 70 percent of them believe that Biden's election wasn't legitimate, which means they think that Trump won against Joe Biden once and they expect that he can do it again. Um, So I think a lot of the kind of conventional wisdom arguments that we've been making over the past year as we've been watching this process, they're just not panning out. Um, So I really do expect this to be a a pretty quick uh, coronation, really, for Donald Trump.
0: Yeah. I want to talk for a moment about what we learned about Trump supporters. But uh, as a way into that or to continue that conversation, uh, what you were just talking about, Rachel, uh, let's listen to um, this bit of audio from Caucus Night. This is at a Cedar Falls caucus site. Roger Wook explained why he's caucusing or caucused for Donald Trump because we need a strong person
2: in that, in the office. Um, under Donald Trump, you know, we, we didn't have any wars. We, you know, price, gas prices were low, groceries were low. I mean, if you want to, if you like that kind of uh, atmosphere and society that we're living in right now, I mean, vote Joe. For any Democrat, whoever runs, we don't know who that will be yet. But, uh, no, I'm going to vote for Donald Trump. I only wish that he and Ron DeSantis would get together (laughs) and become president and vice president.
0: Hmm. Roger Wook of Cedar Falls at a caucus site on Monday night. Uh, Wayne, talk a little bit about the overlap in support between Trump and DeSantis.
2: Uh, well, it, 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 there's quite a bit of overlap, and uh, it is conceivable that Trump might pick DeSantos as a vice presidential candidate. DeSantos has every reason. I don't think he has any chance in New Hampshire, but he has every reason to get close to Trump now in hopes of getting a job in the Trump, ad, a second Trump administration. One other thing I would add, too, the New Hampshire voters are quite different than the Iowa voters. Many more of them are suburban voters. Um, Republican voters are, and the support for Trump, even among Republican voters, looks to be substantially less than in Iowa. Mm-hmm.
0: Join our conversation 1-866-780-9100. Email us river to river at iowapublicradio dot org. Looking for five words or less to describe the state of the Iowa Democratic Party. We'll elaborate on that in a little bit after we do some more post-mortem on the Iowa caucuses uh, here. Uh, l- let me ask you this, Rachel, because uh, I think this is an area where you actually have done some research. We, we have Trump's win despite numerous indictments, um, four indictments, what, 91 charges. What does that tell us about his supporters View of and trust in government institutions like courts.
1: Yeah, I, you know this came up in 2016 during his first run, um, and I, I liken Donald Trump to a certain breed of candidate that's kind of the anti-politician politician. Mm-hmm. And among those people who have low faith in government institutions, who feel as though they're being left behind by traditional government processes and and leaders um you know you look at the campaigns of someone like Ron Paul who uh, he was the first person i called an anti politician politician <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, But he kind of galvanized this group of supporters who were deeply skeptical of government power. Um, And I think on the left, you saw a similar phenomenon with Bernie Sanders. Donald Trump has really inherited that mantle. They like the fact that he's gritty, that he's not polished, that he speaks candidly. Um, And so – You know, when you have a group of people who are skeptical of the use of government power, they're skeptical of government institutions and leaders within those institutions, it's not a surprise that something like indictments, right? I mean, this is a group of people who they see the whole system as rigged. Uh, And so when Donald Trump goes out and says you know, they're indicting me, they're coming after me because they can't come after you. I'm willing to stand here and take it. And I'm going to push back against these government institutions uh, that are politically motivated. Then I think that's a message that resonates for a lot of these folks. Everybody's been, I say everybody, the kind of the traditional commentators on politics seem to be, kind of astounded that the more he gets indicted, the more court cases he he faces, the more popular he gets. His popularity has only gone up. And I think it speaks to that deep-seated distrust. Mm-hmm. Um, and the courts are a part of that.
0: Yeah. Uh, and, and then also tied closely I- into that, yeah, the, the courts and uh, these trials. We have the civil de- de- defamation trial against Donald Trump beginning this week in New York. Uh, Uh, whether Donald Trump should pay damages for comments about E. Jean Carroll, this writer who has said, and the court agrees, Trump sexually assaulted her, derided her when she spoke out. Mm -hmm. Um, The former president appeared in court yesterday. Wayne, your thoughts on on Trump's strategy in dealing with all these legal issues, and this is the way it's going to be from now until Election Day, because you look at the calendar of his legal calendar and his campaign calendar, it it will be uh, a mix of both of those for the weeks up until November, won't it? Uh, what are your thoughts about how Trump, he showed up yesterday, he didn't need to, about how he's conducting his presidential campaign along with all these legal issues?
2: Well, I, I, I think his appearances in court, and in fact the way he's handling the legal, legal issues in general, are part, it's part of his campaign. Uh, um, he, he goes to the courtroom... Uh, he he speaks up against the judge, then he comes out and holds a press conference, uh, and he he certainly builds on the distrust of government, which Rachel has talked about. He not only responds to it, but he also builds it and, and works in the process of doing this to weaken public support uh, for the judicial system.
0: Yeah. Okay. We have to take a short break, and we'll be back in just a moment with our political Analysts, uh, Political scientist Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College or uh, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University. We'd love to have you join us. So We have some uh, people playing our five-word game, and we'll <laughs> dive into that next. Uh, very low turnout for Iowa Democrats. We heard a few days ago the Iowa Senate Minority Leader Pam Yocum announced last week she will not seek re-election this year. Uh, so that's uh, our jumping-off point for uh, asking you to describe in five words or less... Uh, Describe the state of the Iowa Democratic Party, 1-866-780-9100, or email us your handful of words to describe the state of the Iowa Democratic Party, river-to-river at iowapublicradio.org. We'll see what Wayne and Rachel have to say about that when we return. It's River to River from IPR News. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Iowa Public Radio is here to tell Iowa's story, connecting you to relevant information, diverse perspectives, and enriching culture. Our goal is to create a more informed state full of engaged, vibrant communities. We're back midstream in this edition of River to River from IPR News. I'm Ben Kiefer, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, our two political scientists on board uh, two days after the Iowa caucuses uh, uh, delivered a overwhelming Um, win victory for Donald Trump over his rivals. We'll see what happens in the next primary season. Uh, Let's shift gears a little bit to talk about the state of the Iowa Democratic Party. Um, We had low turnout uh, during this caucus. Of course, not a Not a competitive uh, race. We have the calendar very much different uh, than traditionally for the Democratic caucuses here. But uh, last week we had the Senate Minority Leader, Pam Yocum, announce she would not seek re-election this year. Let's remind ourselves, Democrats hold a minority and have for some time in both chambers of the legislature, uh, Auditor of the State Rob Sand, the only Democrat to currently hold a statewide elected office. Uh, Pam Yocum says she plans to work toward Getting more Democrats elected in the November election. Uh, and also, she said, focusing on bringing younger people into state politics. So our question for you that I put out earlier, five words or less, describe the state of the Iowa Democratic Party. Several takers on on that. Let me read those before we go to you, Wayne and uh, Rachel, with your answers uh, to, to that. More than five words from you. You get more than five <laughs> words. Uh, Bill in Polk County writes... Fired up, ready to go. Well, we're hearkening back to Obama there, I guess, aren't we? Cameron in Des Moines uh, writes, Unforced errors need more aggression. Michelle writes, Iowa Democrats are moving forward. Julie in the Quad Cities writes, Are they extinct? <laughs> Randy in Iowa City writes, On life support in the same vein, if I can make that very bad pun. Um, Rachel who will lead the charge for the Iowa Democrats into this next election, uh, given what we have right now? What is well, it? What is your answer to our question? This <laughs> the state of the Iowa Democratic Party, I guess, first of all,
1: I guess I'm, for a long time, I've described the Iowa Democratic Party as atrophied. Um, you know, it was just five years ago that and that may seem like a very long time, but in political world, that's that's the blink of an eye, really. Um, five years ago, Democrats won three of four congressional seats in Iowa. So I am not somebody who thinks Iowa has irredeemably read. Having said that, I do think, and this is true of a lot of state Democratic Party organizations, you know, after the Obama administration, there there was a loss of organizational support. Uh, and I think for Iowa in particular, in 2020, you know, you saw the DNC kind of actively undermine its own state party organization during the caucus process and And so, you know, they've lost a lot of data operations. They've lost staff. They've lost money. they've lost national support. They've lost media attention. Um, the, it it's a really remarkable shift. Um, and I don't think it's the fault of any particular leaders within the party. I think it's a long- term trend and the party is doing the best it can but it really hasn't developed a pipeline of talent that you know allows people to come up and and take on leadership roles at the right place at the right time who's going to lead the effort you know presumably the house minority leader Jennifer Confrus will be out front in many of these you know many of these efforts Pam Yokum will continue to be active Who's going to step into her role in the Iowa Senate? You know, if we're generally – genuinely looking at generational change, I think we're probably looking at a Democratic whip, Sarah Trone Garriott, or we're looking at, you know, some of the assistant Democratic leaders in the Senate, Nate Bolton most notably um, from a generational perspective. So it's a – it's going to be an important leadership shift, but there's a lot of leadership that needs to be cultivated within the party organization right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, in our five words or less to describe the state of the Iowa Democratic Party, Gary writes, floundering but clawing back slowly. Wayne, how do you answer our question and Then the challenges facing the Iowa Democratic Party, having been in the minority for so long?
2: Um, I use the word disarray uh and i don't think it's being helped by president biden uh for for good reason i mean biden did very poorly in the uh 2020 iowa caucuses and of course he he bumped iowa from the democratic caucus at least in terms of uh selecting uh convention delegates and i i think that that's hurt the party um uh, and Democrats had a chance if if they had been uh, still have a, a meaningful caucus uh, to get a lot of a lot more attention and perhaps mobilize more voters inside of Iowa. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, let me jump to to some more state politics here. Um, well, well, Rachel, do you want to finish up here? You you talked about the new generation of leaders. Uh, do you have any names, for instance? Will <laughs> Will Zach Walls? Have another bite at the apple. Uh, he's uh, definitely uh, uh, yeah. in, in the young generation.
1: I don't know the answer to that. I, I do know. I mean, I, to Wayne's point, I think the Democrats have made a huge mistake in how they've handled this change in the in the primary calendar this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they went into this with a charge largely from the young progressive wing of the party. Um, Bernie Sanders supporters who were really unhappy after 2016. They felt as though the party had favored Hillary Clinton. They demanded this kind of reworking of inside, you know, political, inside processes within the DNC. And um, out of that came the Unity Commission report. Out of that came this effort to reorganize the calendar. The Rules and Bylaws Committee met over the course of almost two years. They heard from states. um, And the vast majority of it they did with an eye towards or they kept repeating the word inclusivity. They wanted the process to be more democratic. They wanted the process to be more inclusive. But in doing it, you know, they, they put off making a decision. They put off making a decision four times. They put off making a decision until Joe Biden came forward and said, here's my preferred calendar. And they accepted Joe Biden's preferred calendar with and the, no and, questions asked.
0: And the granite the granite staters, the new, those saying, in New Hampshire did not, right? Yep.
1: They ousted Iowa. They ousted New Hampshire. They're starting, you know, presumably or officially starting in South Carolina. Um, and New Hampshire said, nope, we're going to go first anyway. But Joe Biden's name isn't even on the ballot. That means Democrats have ceded the narrative to Republicans during the first two months of this nomination race. There's no conversation about what's going on in the Democratic Party. There's no turnout. There's no enthusiasm. There's no alternative to Joe Biden, despite the fact that 50 to 60 percent of Democrats say that they don't want Joe Biden to be their nominee. That is the opposite of inclusivity. That is actually a very exclusive process. They chose their candidate and allowed their candidate to pick the calendar. Um, And that to me is exactly the opposite of what young progressive voters within the Democratic Party were asking for. Um, Now, they might not like Iowa for various reasons, and we can have that conversation. But the way they've handled this, I think, has really hurt them and has hurt them particularly among young progressive voices. That's true in Iowa and it's going to be true in other states, particularly with the Israel Hamas situation. You're seeing young voters flee the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. They're seeing frustration with Joe Biden. Um, It presents all sorts of long term challenges for his campaign. Um, I think it's going to. It's going to turn out to be, in the words of one listener there, uh, huge unforced errors here. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, Wayne, did I Iowa— I have a lot
1: to say on that. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah. No. Uh, Wayne, do you agree a massive misplay by Iowa Democrats and the Biden administration here?
1: Uh, well,
2: I, I, I think in general with the Democratic Party in general, as well as the administration.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Join our conversation. one eight six Let's turn to uh, some congressional uh, matters here. Uh, you know, listening to Politics Day on River to River, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College, Rachel Caulfield, a professor of political science at Drake University. Um, we have some other five words to chip in here before <laughs> we move on here. Jill writing uh, five words to describe the um, uh, Iowa Democratic Party. She only has three actually just two defeated and silent Uh, another jill writing equity environment public school supporters okay Mm -hmm. thanks for playing our game uh we'll play that in i think in the upcoming weeks we had a nice turnout for that okay Uh, let's move to some congressional matters um uh, congress taking a step toward preventing a government shutdown Uh, The partial shutdown could come as soon as this weekend. Money for about 20 percent of the federal government runs out Friday night. The rest expires February 2nd, uh, which would send millions of federal workers home without pay. Um, uh, Wayne, what do you see in this latest threat of a government shutdown? Do you see um, before the end of the week uh, uh, prevention of that?
2: I, I think there's a chance of it. Uh, i don 't think either party wants the shutdown right now, and there is there is some movement toward bipartisan agreement i 'm not sure whether it will come to fruition or not um, but uh, I think there 's a chance a, a good chance we'll avoid a shutdown.
0: What about you, Rachel?
1: Well, I mean, it looks right now like congressional leaders are negotiating. Another stopgap spending resolution that would allow them to to buy a little bit more time until March. Hopefully, by March they would actually have completed the remaining spending bills that they need to complete. Um, You know, Speaker Johnson is now finding himself in exactly the same position that Kevin McCarthy was in, Um, and he's you know getting pushback from some on the right wing of his coalition in Congress, and um, so I think. He's treading carefully, but I would agree with Wayne. Neither party wants a government shutdown right now. They want to be able to find agreement. Um, and there are some, you know, some positive, uh, incl- you know, there are positive indications that they're moving towards that, but it won't be a, um, you know, a standard budget. It will be another continuing resolution that will push, push the final decisions down the road a little bit.
0: Five words or less to describe the Iowa Democratic Party. We have still some takers on that. On the phone, <laughs> Carol from uh, Ryan, Iowa, it says on my screen. Hi, Carol.
3: Hi. Thanks for taking my call. So my five words are out of touch with democracy.
0: All right. I want, a, yeah, explain that a little bit. In what way?
3: Well, as a county party leader, I get to meet folks who come to some of our more fun events and like birthday and food drives and stuff like that and we get to meet uh, folks who are under 50 years old and they say um this the way the day party is being run now it doesn't work for those of us who are busy with work or work and family um it it we feel that um uh, especially Recently, with a the caucus, they felt completely left out because they won't be—they would not be able to attend a Monday night event, and they feel that no one is listening to them. They want to join the Democratic Party; they want to be part of the solution, but they can't do it in an old-fashioned way.
0: Hmm. All right. So
3: it's not democratic.
0: Mhm Carol thank you very much. Uh Rachel what do you think about that? Carol says uh, she's a county party leader sounds like uh, she has some experience there in mm-hmm. in listening to the folks and and you know young people um wanting to be part of the action but the party not allowing them or not opening to them.
1: Yeah and this has been an ongoing you know, ongoing question for the Democratic Party, if you go all the way back to 1968, right? The, there was this huge pressure from young people within the party who wanted to be active, wanted to be uh, involved in decision-making processes, had the very firm ideas about the direction of the party for the future, um, and didn't feel as though the party processes were allowing them to have a, enough of a role. They They felt like they weren't... Um, you know, they were being dismissed. Mm-hmm. And so many of the reforms that have gone on in the Democratic Party for the past 50 plus years have been trying to accommodate that younger, um, you know, that younger demographic, bringing fresh voices into the party. And clearly, right now, there is a generational divide within the Democratic Party. Part of that is process and part of that is issues.
0: Mm hmm. There's a part of the the caucus aftermath I still wanted to, to have your opinions on. Wayne, to you first on this, because it involves our our, our governor. Governor Kim Reynolds endorsed Ron DeSantis in the caucuses. Uh, she was gave a rousing speech for him after the caucus results were in. Um, and, and I want to get your thoughts, Wayne and, and Rachel, on, um, you know, The implications of the governor doing something unprecedented there, weighing in uh, on a a GOP candidate as a Republican governor there. And will that have any lasting ripples for her leadership or uh, within Republican leadership? Because we know uh, they were, you know, and the president singled these out, several political leaders here in Iowa who were ardent supporters uh, of the former president, Bobby Kaufman, state representative, uh, state senator Brad Zahn, uh, uh, and uh, Attorney General Brenna Byrd. He even called her uh, the next Iowa governor. Wayne, what are your thoughts about the repercussions for Governor Reynolds?
2: Well, uh, it would be it would be very hard to imagine her joining the Trump administration under any circumstances. Uh, the interesting questions, though, in terms of the president's budget, in terms of whether uh, Iowa has to pay a price. On the other hand, Trump did so well in in the caucuses. Uh, Reynolds' future with him is probably not very good, but I'm not sure that Iowa will pay a large price.
0: Mm -hmm. Rachel, do you see it that way?
1: I do. I mean, one of the interesting things – so if you look at the Iowa poll right before the caucuses, all the candidates actually performed – in a way that was pretty consistent with that final poll, it was within the margin of error. Within you know for the polling results, it was kind of amazing. And Seltzer, uh, her secret sauce works again, right?
0: <laughs> right, it sure um,
1: The one exception is Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis, just you know, the final Iowa poll had him at sixteen percent, and he of course came in with twenty one percent. That's out of the margin of error, and you know. It, It's hard to imagine that he does that without the networks that he was tapped into. Those endorsements gave him, I think, a political boost in Iowa. Does it hurt her, you know, the governor's long term political interests? You know, Trump's win was so big. I would agree with Wayne. I don't think it's yeah, I don't think it's likely to affect Iowa, um, you know, going forward. I do think, however, that there could be some really interesting coalition building if Ron DeSantis ultimately endorses Donald Trump. Um, And so, you know, you see kind of... In the caucus, you saw some division among evangelicals, 51 um, percent supported Donald Trump, 22 percent Ron DeSantis. Of course, Bob Vander Plaats endorsed Ron DeSantis. Mm-hmm. Um, but if in the end, Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump were to end up on the same page, then it's possible that the Ron DeSantis network gets folded into the Trump network and makes Trump even stronger in the state, mm-hmm. if that's possible. We have to take. (laughs) He's pretty strong.
0: We have to take a short break and then to 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 wind up this, and we're going to move to some foreign policy um, um, and uh, lean on um, Wayne's uh, foreign policy credentials. But when we come back, a quick. uh, Q&A about uh, the post-mortems of the campaigns on of Asa Hutchinson and Vivek Ramaswamy. They both dropped out uh, on caucus day. Why do you think they failed to gather much support among Iowa Republicans? That's the question for my guests, Wayne and Rachel. When we return, it's River to River from IPR News. Back with more River to River from IPR News, I'm Ben Kiefer uh, with our political scientists, Rachel Caulfield of Drake University, Wayne Moyer of Grinnell College. Before we move on to some other things, including foreign policy, postmortems on the campaigns of uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Asa Hutchinson, uh, Wayne, I want to talk to you, uh, get your answer about why Asa Hutchinson's campaign did not work. But first, I I'm want to hand Vivek Ramaswamy to Rachel, biotech entrepreneur, suspending his bid on Monday uh, and endorsed uh, f- former President Trump after a distant fourth finish. Uh, Rachel's seeking to replicate Trump's rise, maybe even uh, go above um, uh, Trump in terms of being bombastic, uh, a wealthy outsider. Uh, He called the former president earlier on Monday evening to congratulate him on his victory in Iowa. What do you see uh, Ramaswamy having achieved in his future in politics?
1: Well, I think like so many in both parties right now, you know, his his big argument was he was Donald Trump, but for the next generation. So he was replicating a lot of policy positions. He was replicating s- Trump stylistically. Um, but, you know, younger, dynamic uh, on the campaign trail. Anyone who saw him uh, thousand watt smile, right, ready to go. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if you have Trump, you don't need the next Trump. Um So I think ultimately that's that's what um, what ended up happening to his campaign. I was there on Monday night when he dropped out of the race mm-hmm. and um, you know a lot of people very disappointed to see him uh, to see him leave the race. but it you know it's really hard to break through when Donald Trump is right there uh, and you got a group of older voters who love Donald Trump, yeah. so.
0: Okay, Asa Hutchinson uh, never managed, uh, Wayne, to uh, build significant momentum in the polls or with donors, securing just 191 votes in the Iowa caucuses. Um, and actually, a little-known businessman from Texas and a pastor named Ryan Binkley uh, Garnered many more votes than Asa Hutchinson did. Seven hundred seventy-four votes, according to my uh, information. Uh, why, why, Hutchinson just securing just one hundred ninety-one votes in the Iowa caucuses. Uh, he said, "Wayne, my message of being a principled Republican with experience and telling the truth about the current front runner did not sell in Iowa." Wayne.
2: Well, I I think it's. <clears throat> partly because he's part of the old Republican party and it's now Trump's party. Part of it is he's much older and uh his message really didn't resonate with Iowa voters. On Ramaswamy though, let me just say one other thing. Mm-hmm. He may well get a cabinet offer uh from if Trump is, is elected and he very well has a polit- may may have a political future.
0: Yeah. Um Today, the president uh, Biden's uh, meeting with congressional leaders at the White House uh, to discuss funding for Ukraine, Israel and the southern border that uh, we remind ourselves has been stalled for weeks on Capitol Hill. Uh, Biden requesting over one hundred ten billion dollars in this package held up by Republicans who are demanding a new crackdown at the border in exchange for their votes. Wayne, how do you see that?
2: well i'm 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 not sure they're going to reach agreement uh there There are strong pressures to give the aid to ukraine uh The Republican Party is very divided on this. The Democratic Party is united but uh, uh Ukraine is suffering right now militarily. the Russians seem to be back on the offensive uh, but the border thing is going to be very difficult for biden to to accept um and then there's a left wing of the Democratic Party, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, wants to make our aid to Israel conditional uh, uh, as part of his support for this agreement. So I I think it's a tough one. I think it's critically important for Ukraine to get aid at this stage of the game. Uh, if Ukraine falls, it strengthens Putin's overall position in Europe. And I think works to undermine the current world order.
0: Right, and and we can imagine Putin uh, savoring not only the failure of this uh, further package for Ukraine, but Wayne has to be savoring the prospect of Donald Trump being in the Oval Office again in twenty twenty five or not.
2: I think he clearly is savoring it, and he, and and clearly he will not do anything in terms of meaningful negotiations until after the 2024 election. And Trump, of course, has indicated he does not support the war in Ukraine.
0: Yeah. Uh, Rachel, weigh in here about the um, uh, this um, new crackdown on the border and it, that, that Republicans are, are demanding in exchange for their votes. I wonder, you know, Democrats have tended to combine this passionate support for many forms of immigration, also a belief in a strong border security. But now we have uh, mostly President Trump's, former President Trump's harsh anti-immigration stance, uh, pushing the GOP toward uh, the other end of the spectrum. Do you think Democrats are, are going to readjust here?
1: Well, so, you know, Wayne quite rightly said on the issue of Ukraine, that Democrats are very unified on the issue and Republicans are divided. Uh, And on immigration, exactly the opposite is true. Uh, I think, you know, Republicans are incredibly unified on this issue. Democrats – are less so, um, depending on kind of which House you're looking at and which members of Congress you're looking at. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Republicans are demanding these changes at the border and have been very effective at crafting the national narrative around immigration. Yeah. So, President Biden uh, and members of his cabinet are coming forward and speaking very openly about the crisis on the border. That's Republican language, right? <laughs> That's been adopted. That's not to say it's not true, but um, like the first framing of the issue. Republicans have certainly done a more effective job at framing the issue in the public consciousness and really forcing uh, a conversation about how to change policy. So this group, this bipartisan group in the Senate has been working diligently over the past few months to put together some sort of deal. The House Republicans are now coming forward and saying, you know what? We've passed a bill on border security. We need all of those provisions, and particularly policy changes on asylum and the parole process. We need those changes to be included. If they're not included, there's no deal here. Um, so both part, you know, both parties in Congress, I think, have an incentive to deal on these issues. Um, But the details remember, it's been decades since Congress has reached agreement on immigration reform. Uh, So working out these details on such a tight timeline is incredibly hard work.
3: Yeah.
0: I I wonder, though, Rachel, to put a finer point on it, it, are Democrats in particular here in step with public opinion when it comes to immigration, do you think?
1: Well, I think it depends entirely on where you are in the country and who you're talking to. There's a lot of disparate views on immigration, but you know, polling is telling us that the American people are increasingly concerned about the southern border, um, and Republican rhetoric has been very effective at calling attention to the southern border. So they, I think they've been very good at framing the issue and drawing public attention to it, really forcing a policy response by Democrats that isn't perhaps what Democrats would have wanted.
0: Yeah. Wayne, with your foreign policy expertise, I want to have you give us a few words about the expanding conflict uh, in the Middle East, more U.S. strikes on Houthi facilities in Yemen, Um, Israel and Hamas reaching a a deal to deliver medicine to hostages. Um, uh, What do you think, uh, thoughts about the latest developments in in the Middle East? Are we slowly expanding this war, this conflict, uh, uh, to uh, where is it headed in your view?
2: Well, there's a great risk of it expanding, and the U.S. is working very hard to stop it. Uh, behind all of this is Iran. Iran is aiding the Houthis. Iran is aiding Hezbollah. Iran has been aiding Hamas. Uh, and they have, the leaders of Iran want an unstable Middle East, and they want to reduce the U.S. influence in the Middle East as as well as do what they can to undermine Israel. And they're giving military aid and missiles and and weapons uh, to these various groups in these various surrounding countries. Uh, and the situation is escalating, and the question is as to whether the U.S. will be able to broker some kind of deal to to Get the other countries to sort of resist this tendency to expand. Get the and to uh, resist these other groups. The Houthis are going to be very hard to stop in terms of bombarding U.S. ships. I think that will be very, very, very difficult. Um, Um, but I don't think it's going to have a dramatic effect on the economy. The ships will have to go around the southern tip of Africa rather than going through the Suez Canal, and that will raise prices a bit, but I don't think it'll be a dramatic effect.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, Let's conclude here. I want to give a little bit of attention to Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy. We had a national holiday on Monday celebrating Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. here in Iowa, very much overshadowed in our news, of course, because Monday was caucus day uh, as well. Uh, King is spending the last years of his life advocating for nonviolent action against racial inequality in the US, um, sparked a national movement, uh, earned himself the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. Um, uh, but despite all these accolades, it wasn't until 20 years after his assassination, uh, assassinated in 1968, that uh, King Martin Luther King Jr. Day became a federally recognized, that was in 1980. 19- 86, even longer until all 50 states recognized the holiday we celebrated on Monday. It wasn't until the year 2000 that all states recognized it. I'd like to end with some reflections on MLK's vision and where we are now. Uh, Rachel, will you start us off?
1: Well, certainly, you know, this is a, a person who's had tremendous influence on our thinking about ourselves How we uh, construct our national identity. We've seen tremendous uh, advancements from the time that Martin Luther King was preaching and he was leading the civil rights movement. Uh, But of course, you know, the most recent round of protests and awareness around police violence and racial disparities in the criminal justice system. Those continue, and I think we often forget his legacy in terms of military intervention, opposing military in- intervention, mm. uh, mm-hmm. thinking about poverty reduction, thinking about fair housing, expanding jobs. His legacy really covered all facets of American life. And while you know we talk about him as a great civil rights leader, and we talk about voting rights and political you know participation and all of those things are important pieces of his legacy. There are, you know, the job, <laughs> the job that he envisioned, there's much to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like any movement, it will be a generational movement. It will include multiple generations, multiple decades. Um, and the, you know, the quest to become a better country and to better reflect the needs of our people is always ongoing.
0: Yeah. Well, would you be uh, agree with the assessment uh, maybe in, in a lot of ways two steps forward one step back
1: <laughs> I think that's true of any social movement
0: all right Wayne your reflections
1: well I, I mean this push for equality uh,
2: equality of all politically and, and even economically and through nonviolence, I think is terribly important and another thing of course he, he became strongly opposed to the Vietnam War so military action in various places around the world uh, uh, is not something that he would, would support, I think, uh, under most circumstances. Uh, but uh, as Rachel said, an enormous legacy. Uh, and uh, it, did, it has taken a long time, and it still has a long way to go. But the progress is, is, is very, very apparent.
0: Yeah. Uh, I wonder in, well, in um, an Iowa issue that we've been dealing with this last past uh, year, the Iowa Board of Regents instructing the three state universities, the public universities, to retain only those DEI, the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Program efforts necessary to maintain federal funding. Everything else must go. Neither of you are employed at a public university, (laughs) so I'm going to look to you as as a neutral observer and analyst, uh, Rachel. How do you see the current Iowa DEI controversy against the backdrop, perhaps, of MLK's vision and legacy?
1: Well, you know, I think the way we institutionalize conversations about racial equality uh, and equity and inclusion, um, those... Conversations, as they come to be translated into policy, oftentimes are not nearly as clear cut or as easily implemented as you know as we might hope. And so, I think many of the DEI policies that we've seen in higher education, uh, while they're certainly well intentioned, they do have uh, inadvertent side effects, and and mm-hmm. those are the things that draw a lot of the political backlash. Um, And so, you know, I think Martin Luther King's legacy is a much broader legacy that embraces the idea that each one of us individually can be doing this work. Um, Institutional policies and the implementation of those policies is kind of a separate question. It's related, but it's not entirely the same.
0: Mm -hmm. Wayne, the final minute uh, for you with your reflections.
2: Well, I, I've, I've, I very, very strongly support DEI, but I think it's become excessively bureaucratized. Uh, as, a, as a set of principles, it's very, very important, but the way that it's been implemented, and I think this goes to what Rachel is saying, is has been such an inflexible, uh, as, as bureaucracies tend to be, that it brings a a very negative response from certain quarters of society. So principle, yes, but be careful of bureaucratization.
0: Okay, we'll see where that goes uh, this year as we continue to uh, cover politics. I want to thank you for being with us this hour and for our listeners uh, chipping in on our five-word game. We had a lot of fun there. That encourages us to do that more in the future. You do realize that, don't you? (laughs) Okay. Rachel Caulfield, professor of political science at Drake University. Wayne Moyer, professor of political science and policy studies at Grinnell College. Rachel and Wayne, thank you so much for your insights this hour.
1: Thank you, Ben. I'm off to New Hampshire.
0: You're off to New Hampshire. Off to New Hampshire. (laughs) All right. We'll have to quiz you about that when you return. (laughs) Take care. Safe travels. Bye. State of Iowa recently rejected nearly $30 million in federal summer food assistance for children of low-income families. That's the focus of our program tomorrow, Food Insecurity in the State. We hope you'll tune in. Today's program produced by Katherine Perkins, uh, also help from Maddie Willis. I'm Ben Kiefer. Thanks for joining us.